John 11:45 is where we are. But let me first direct you to this quote. One of my favorite books on worship is a book by Zach Hicks called The Worship Pastor. It's not just about pastoring, but it's about worship. Here's what he says. The enemy hates the worship of God more than anything else. Worship prophesies to the world, you will be made new, but you first must die. All this is because the flesh doesn't just stumble into sin, it worships its way into sin. The lust of the flesh is the fruit of idolatrous adoration, and the call of worship is a summons away from fleshly addictions to idols. Now why is that important? That's important because what we're doing here this morning is war. All week long, your heart has been attempted to be wooed by the wrong things. You realize that, don't you? Say yes. Yes. Okay, good. Say yes again. You, You lived life and you had marketing coming at you, you had temptations coming your way, and the hook of the enemy is, you want to really live? Go here. You want to really believe? You want to really experience something? Do this. And essentially, what's on the line is not just what you do, that's an issue, but what's really underneath all of that is what do you really love? What's really worthy? What is deserving of your adoration and your affection? So when we gather on the Lord's Day, what we're doing is trying to remind one another not only what is true, but we're trying to battle through worship what really is important. So if you're here today and you're not yet a Christian, what you need to understand is that underneath your life are really important questions that the Bible answers and that we engage in in the context of Sunday morning worship. Questions like, who are you? Really, at the core, who are you? What's the purpose of your life? Or here's one, what do you think happens when you die? And for that matter, who is Jesus? And what do you really love? You see, those questions are so fundamental to humanity that Christians find the answers to those questions in the person and work of Christ. To be a Christian, and those of you who are Christians, I want to remind you, you have come to believe that God is holy, you're not, that Jesus saves, and now Christ is your life. It means that at the end of the day, there is this fundamental conviction within your soul that Jesus is who you live for. Jesus is the one that you're striving after, and Jesus is the singular person in all of the universe who is worthy of your affection and adoration. And our gathering, our singing, our listening to God's word, yes, even our giving, all serve to remind us of that truth that we tend to forget over the course of six days. So we're in a battle, a battle for what we believe. Now John writes his gospel for that very issue. Over and over throughout the gospel, he shows us the difference between unbelief and belief. He shows us the inflection point between those who chose to follow Christ and those who rejected him. And today we're gonna see three examples in the text. First, of religious leaders who chose power and position over Jesus. Secondly, we're gonna see Mary who anoints Jesus' feet and embraces humility and generosity. And then third, we're going to see Judas, one of Jesus' own disciples who chooses greed and religious hypocrisy to hide his thievery. And what John wants you to see in this text is the way that this moment sets in motion the crucifixion, and there are three paths. And what I want you to do is to consider who 
do you think you are like in this text, and why? Or maybe, maybe a better question, to what extent are you like each of them in John chapter 11? So first, let's look at the religious leaders and the issue of prideful power. Verse 45, many Jews therefore who had come with Mary and had seen what he did believed in him. What happened? Well, the prior text was about Jesus raising Lazarus. So apparently there's some people who were at the tomb and they saw, can you imagine this moment, a dead man walk out of the grave. How crazy is that? Jesus stood at the tomb, he wept because of what he saw, and he said, Lazarus, come forth! And out of the tomb walks a man bound in funeral linens, and Jesus says, unbind him and let him go. I mean, how about that? As a result, many people believed in him, the text says. I mean, they realize this really is the Son of God. If Jesus can do that, then surely he must be who he claims to be. Verse 46, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Some people found the religious leaders and they told the Pharisees about Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. Why would that matter? Well, there's no more formidable foe for humans than death. And if Jesus actually has the power to raise the dead, then that means two things. Number one, it means that he really is the son of God if he has power over death, because who else has power over death except God? And secondly, it means that Jesus will be unstoppable. After all, you can use death to squelch a revolt, but what if the leader of the revolt has the power to call all of his just killed people out of the grave? It's like a zombie movie, it's unstoppable in the worst sort of sense in that respect, but in the best sort of sense, it means that Jesus is the one who cannot be stopped. So it's reported to the Pharisees, verse 47, so the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and they said, what are we to do for this man performs many signs? Now you need to know what the council is to see the significance of this gathering. At the time, the nation of Israel was under Roman occupation. And the Romans gave the Jews a leash politically to sort of have self-governance to a certain extent. And the central governing body of their freedom, quote unquote, underneath the Roman government was the Sanhedrin, that's the council. The Sanhedrin was made up primarily of three groups. It was made up of priestly families, those who had an inheritance, so to speak, by virtue of their family background to be one of the chief priests. It was made up of those who were the scribes. These were the religious instructors, the people who, who taught the people the law, and they uh, were close to the people. They were closer than the, the chief priests. They were sort of on the ground, in the villages, teaching people what God's law said. And then there were the elders, and these were the sort of landed, wealthy aristocrats. And so this gathering, this political gathering of this council called the Sanhedrin is the merging of what we would think of as the executive branch, 
with the chief priest, the legislative and the judicial branch of government, and it all centers now on this group. These are the 70 people who control what laws are made, how they're enforced, and the extent to which people are punished. This will be the same group, by the way, that Jesus is processed through, and then they refer his case on to Pilate because the one thing they couldn't do was execute people without Roman permission. So for context, it's important for you to know that this gathering is the gathering of the political operatives. It's the gathering of those who possess power in the context of the nation. So with that in mind, we read verse 47 a little differently when it says, what are we to do for this man performs many signs? They are not simply looking at the fact that Jesus is is performing miracles, but rather they are concerned because Jesus' miracle works are now challenging their own authority and people are actually starting to believe that he is the Messiah. And for that matter, they already faced the embarrassment of the man born blind in John chapter nine when they hauled him in and they sort of tried him and tried to force him to acknowledge that Jesus really wasn't the Messiah. That whole thing blew up in their face. So these Pharisees are, and Sadducees are wounded because of that situation and now they hear, well, he just raised somebody from the dead and that's a problem. That's a really big problem. Here's what they say in verse 48. This is a very important passage. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away our place and our nation. Notice what they're not concerned about. Nobody says, wait a minute, maybe he really is the Messiah. <laughs> no, nobody says, did he really raise somebody from the dead? Get Lazarus in and let's see, is he really alive? Let's Take his pulse, let's hear. Were you really dead, now you're alive? They don't investigate, they don't consider, they don't evaluate, why? Here's why, and this is very important. Because these leaders are not interested in the reality of who Jesus is, they are only interested in preserving their power and position. A caution. Don't read that text and go, Shame on them that they do that. Don't read this text and think, boy, that's kind of rare that human beings do that. <laughs> the fact of the matter is human beings do it all the time. You see, what they're worried about is this. If people begin to believe in Jesus and a riot ensues, Rome is going to sweep in. And when Rome sweeps in, blood is spilt, leaders lose their heads and their position. And they're looking at what Jesus is doing and saying, if he keeps doing this, we know what's going to happen. Rome's going to come and we're going to be out. And that can't happen, so therefore we have to do something. Now, one of the dangers when you read the Bible is to separate yourself from the stories that are there as if if you were in the context, you would not do the same. So let me just give you a few examples of the ways that we actually are sometimes guilty of the same sort of behavior. It's endemic to our humanity. So at my last church, we had a Christian school. And I always found it interesting, and I even do still, even as a parent today, how parents, as it relates to the behavior of their children, sometimes lose their mind. Like, they, they're like crazy. Like, I knew you before, but this meeting, like, woo, 
where are you coming from? Here's what happens. A kid gets in trouble, gets called into the office. We call the parents. They come in. We're having a meeting about the discipline with a child. And that parent who walked in the room is not the same person that I worshiped with on Sunday. Those of you who work in education or with kids or if you have kids, like you've, you've, you've seen this, you've done this, right? Instead of looking at the behavior of the child and evaluating, yeah, their hearts are broken, we want to help the discipleship. No, 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 no. It's about what they did and this happened and everything else because underneath the issue with the child's behavior is actually really the parent's desire to maintain a good position among people and the perception that they're killing it when it comes to being a parent. And so what happens is they bring all of that baggage into the meeting and you can't even deal with the behavior of the child. Now you're dealing with the, the desire of the parent to maintain a particular persona as it relates to their life and what people think of them. Some of you are gonna be tested on this in about 35 minutes. You're gonna go pick up your kid in the, in the nursery and, <laughs> right? I mean, like this is like for real application, right? And I'm, we're gonna take your names and numbers and let everybody know that it happened. Is this gonna happen? No, of course we're not. But it will happen if you show up and someone's like, hey, we had a little issue with Sunday school and immediately you're like, well, what did everybody else do, right? And what do people think? And you could have all of these thoughts that are running behind the actual issue that's happening because this isn't a political problem. It's not a parental problem. It's a human problem. Another example, you find out that your business is restructuring and before you even are concerned about the number of people affected, all you want to know is, does it affect me? And if it doesn't affect you, you listen differently, you read the email differently. Or there's some HR issue that happens in the context of the place that you work and because it has nothing to do with you, you kind of zone out. You see, human beings are relentless preservers of their own positions. And what will happen is this, this will get so off the rails that when these religious leaders bring Jesus to Pilate and when he says, behold your king, in John chapter 19, they are actually gonna say, the religious leaders of the nation are gonna say these words, we have no king but Caesar. Wow. No king but Caesar? Not only do they not believe that, that goes against everything that they believe, it goes against everything that the nation is meant to be, but in that moment, they want Jesus dead and they're willing to do anything good, anything, they're willing to do anything they can to get him out of the way because they don't want Rome to come and take their position. So when the Sadducees and the Pharisees and when the elders say he will take away our place and our nation, they're reflecting both on their position and their love for their nation, which gives them that position. And they don't know how far they've wandered. In fact, that's why Jesus overturns the tables of money in John chapter 2. They don't even see the audacity of that moment of perverting worship. That's why Jesus' teaching is constantly at odds with the Pharisees. That's why in Matthew 23, he says to them something like this. You, you say when you build tombs to the prophets that if you lived in that day, you wouldn't have persecuted the prophets. You act as though you set up a monument, like if we lived then, we wouldn't have done that, but you don't know who you are. You don't listen to me, 
And you think you would have listened to them? The pride of these leaders blinds them to who Jesus really is. One of the challenges, last week I was on the civil rights vision trip, and you know, one of the things that just haunts me in the context of that trip is looking back at the history of our country and asking myself this question, Mark, if you were a pastor in the 1960s, where would you be on this issue? And I think I know where I'd be. And I'd be on the wrong side. Because I know what it would cost to be on the right side. And I don't have confidence that I would do the right thing. Because when I look at this text and I see these rulers, I don't just see these rulers, I actually see me. And I hope you do the same. I hope that you see this text and instead of looking, oh, those wicked Pharisees, those Sadducees, they're so blind to who they are, I hope that you'll use this text to say, how am I blind? The Caiaphas, Caiaphas, the, the high priest, he speaks up. Look at what he says. He says in verse 49, you know nothing at all. That's a great way to start, right? Obviously, he has a doctorate in humility, apparently. <laughs> Nor do you understand, and notice what he says here, it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Notice, 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 notice how other-centered his words sound, how wise they sound, and what he just did is set in motion the crucifixion of the Son of God. From that day forward, the clock is ticking for the crucifixion of Jesus. Verse 51, John says this, he did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not only for the nation, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. So here is the moment when the decision is made. And this is, church, what prideful clutching to power does. It rationalizes, it spiritualizes, it philosophizes. Verse 54, Jesus no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand. This is the Passover that will eventually lead to Jesus' death. And many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves, another sort of twist of irony. They were looking for Jesus, saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. So here the die is cast. Now let me just ask you, do you feel any sort of connection with the dynamics that are in play here? For those of you who are Christians, I just want to remind you that you're going to have to make decisions throughout your life that relate to, are you willing to give up position? Are you willing to give up what people think of you in order to name the name of Christ? For some of you, that may come in the context of a family gathering where you're called upon to acknowledge that you're a Christ follower or some way express that, and you know you do that, there's going to be issues. Like, this is going to make it really awkward. And you've got to be wise. can't be a bull in a china shop. You've got to know when the right time is. But... When that time comes and you know you're supposed to speak, you, you, you have to decide, who am I going to side with here? Am I going to love what people think of me and kind of be in a closet Christian? Or am I going to go out there and say, no, look, this is what I believe. You may have to do that at work or in your sorority. 
For those of you who are, have positions of influence in business or education and politics, sometimes you're going to have to make some really, really hard choices and decide where is the line of whether you are faithfully following Jesus or you're just simply going with the flow of culture and trying to get ahead and protect your position and following the group think of our, of our society with little subcultures. So when you look at this text, I hope if you're a Christian, you feel the, 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 the weight of it. If you're not a Christian, you need to know that the only way that you come to Christ is you have to be willing to admit that you're a sinner. You take the position of saying, I'm righteous, and you throw that away, and you look to the righteousness of Jesus. In other words, the only way that you come to Christ is by ending the comparison game, being willing to go on the record that you are a Christ follower, and that in your brokenness, you need a savior. So this is path number one. It's the prideful power grab. Now thankfully, John gives us another story. I think you're ready for one. I'm ready to talk about another one. It's heavy. Here's the second one, humble generosity. The scene shifts from the halls of power and political intrigue to a dinner party in a home in Bethany six days before Passover. The text tells us Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. John wants to make that very clear. Lazarus, the guy who came out of the tomb, he was there. So they gave a dinner for him there. They gave a dinner for Jesus in the home of Lazarus. Mary served, or Martha served rather, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Notice Lazarus, Lazarus, Lazarus. He wants you to know Lazarus was at this dinner and Jesus is reclining. That's how they ate in the um, ancient Near East, kind of leaning on one elbow, legs extended on a long couch. So Jesus and Lazarus are there. Mary, verse three, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard, probably from India, likely the cost of a year's worth of wages of a common laborer. This is not like just some perfume, like Estee Lauder poured on his feet, okay? This is, this is, this is something that's really, really expensive. It's used for the embalming of bodies when people died. It was probably a family inheritance or somebody told me after first service, it may have been part of her dowry. So this is not an inexpensive act. Mary does something unusual. It says that she anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. Now get this scene. Here is this woman in a dinner with her brother who's been raised and Jesus who raised him from the dead and she takes her hair wound up probably in some form, probably a scarf over it, undoes the scarf, lets her hair down, which would have been culturally abnormal, not immoral, but very unusual. And then she takes her hair after anointing the feet of Jesus. Other texts tell us she also anointed his head, but in this text, John wants you to see the feet. Why the feet? Because only servants washed feet. And here's Mary with Jesus extended on this couch with Lazarus seated at the table who pours out this year's worth of wages ointment on his feet and then begins wiping his feet with her hair. And the text says that the whole room filled with the fragrance of this moment. Like, this is an unbelievable scene. Mary, who earlier at the tomb had said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. 
And now she's at a feast. Her brother is alive. And the reason he's alive is because this man, Jesus, the son of God, who she believes in, raised him from the dead. And Mary has lost her mind because of her love of Jesus. She doesn't care what people think of her. She lets down her hair. She doesn't care about the cost of the ointment. She she anoints his feet. She begins worshiping him by wiping his feet with her hair. Mary thinks so highly of Jesus that everything takes second place. She's so enamored with who he is and what he has done that she can't help herself. It's similar to what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 where he says this, for you know the grace of our Lord that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. So what happens here is that Mary comes face to face with the generosity of Jesus. She comes face to face with how enamored and in love she is with Jesus, such that no earthly possession was worth more to her than him. So the Pharisees, we just saw this gut-wrenching, awful, political, power-grabbing text. The Pharisees who completely missed who Jesus is, and here is Mary who gets it, and she worships Jesus, and that room is filled with the fragrance of her worship. Can I just ask you how you feel about Jesus today? Are you in awe of him? Do you love him? Do you worship him? What does, your, what does your speech, your actions, your generosity say about what you think about him? Mary doesn't care about the cost. She doesn't care about the opinions of others. She doesn't care about the culture. Mary knows one thing. I love Jesus. When's the last time that somebody looked at your love for Jesus and was like, bro, you lost your mind? It's crazy you said that at that family gathering. It's crazy you said that in that board meeting. Do you know what you're risking? This is a beautiful moment, but in classic form for John, it doesn't last long. John wants you to see unbelief, belief, back to unbelief. While the fragrance is filling the room with Mary's worship, the poisonous fog of Judas's treachery blows in. He's filled with hypocritical greed. Look at verse five, verse four. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, and then John adds this, just so you know, he who was about to betray him said. We don't know if he said this like in front of everybody. If he said it privately. We know Jesus heard it. But just a matter of the sort of slithering tone of this. Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Mary is worshiping Jesus and Judas spiritualizes his critique of her by referencing how they ought to be more concerned about the poor in this moment. Instead of marveling at her sacrifice, 
instead of affirming the worth of Jesus, instead of looking at this and go, that's right, this is Jesus, totally deserves that. No, he finds a spiritualized reason to criticize her. John makes it painfully clear what's really going on. Verse six, John adds this commentary. He, meaning Judas, said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Here's what happens. Judas uses religious-sounding concern to hide his true heart, which was greed. The tragedy of the moment is as common for Judas as it is for our humanity in general. Judas misses what Mary is doing for Jesus because he loves what he thinks this money will do for him. And so he chooses himself over Jesus, and his greed is just the evidence that this is happening in his heart, and eventually it won't stop there. It leads to the full betrayal of Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. I've held 30 pieces of Palestinian silver. You wouldn't believe how light it is. Jesus rebukes Judas in verses 7 to 8. He identifies the actions of Mary have significance beyond what she even knew. He pointed that this moment will be connected to his burial in the future, and he boldly identifies that Mary's act of worship was commendable even when considering the needs of the poor. And so here we see the tragic irony of Judas's words. Here it is. Listen carefully. He hides his greed behind religious-sounding words. Let me just caution you and warn you, the more you're connected and associated with Christian people, the better you can be at doing this kind of stuff. You can share a prayer request for someone and it's really just a form of gossip. You can say things that sound really spiritual, but what they are hiding is a greedy heart. That lurking in the heart of every person, even after you come to faith in Christ, there's this insurgency battle, that there is this glory thief within each of us that wants to rob the glory that deserve, that should only be God, given to God, that only God deserves, and as a result, we hide our glory thievery with religious-sounding language. And usually when we do it, we don't even see the full effects of it in the moment. be critical of someone's passion. You can resist generosity and meeting a need with some spiritualized language that makes you feel better about your hard-heartedness and you've spiritually justified it. So again, this, this, this text is heavy because John wants us to see the difference between belief and unbelief. And please, don't come to this text and kind of take a step away from it. Lean into it. Ask yourself, to what extent do I look like this? To what extent, how have I done this? Because this isn't just a first century problem. It's not just a Jewish culture problem. It's not just a disciple problem. This is a human problem. And John wants you to see this is the stuff that eventually led to the crucifixion of the Son of God. So the path that I want you to consider today 
is, are you inclined towards the prideful power-grabbing path? Are you inclined towards the greedy, spiritualized hard-heartedness? Or when you look at Mary, is there something about you that says, I, I want out of the love of the gospel and the love of what Jesus has done in my life, I want to be a worshiper of Christ with what I say, what I do, what I give. If you're a person and you've never trusted Christ, you need to ask yourself what stands in your way. Maybe what stands in your way today is refusal to acknowledge deeply rooted spiritual needs. Maybe you are resisting coming to Christ today because you're concerned about what other people would think of you And what happens when Jesus captures your heart, you don't care what people think of you. All you know is this, I'm a sinner, a big one, and Jesus is a savior, a great one, and he rescued me from myself. That's what it means to be a Christian. But the tragedy in the New Testament is often the most successful people in the world miss Jesus because they didn't see their need. And my plea to you would be, don't let that be you. Christians, let me, let me speak to you. How far removed are you today from the example of Mary? How, how long has it been since your heart's been so captivated by the love of Jesus? You just, it's like you're out of your mind. Have you allowed sort of the, the culture of Christianity to create a heartlessness? You know a lot, but you don't feel much anymore? Maybe you could pray along with the psalmist. God, unite my heart to fear your name. So how do you avoid these two ditches? The ditch of power grabbing, the ditch of hypocritical greed. Here's how. Number one, you know they exist. My hope is that you will know that they're there so that when you pick up your kids in a few moments, you'll you'll be all right. It'll be good. Were they disobedient? Yes. Praise God. Okay. I just heard about this. Thank you, Jesus. Right? Right? Or if they're like, no, they were perfect, you're like, yes, that's right, the kids are perfect. You get in the car, we got perfect kids, and you like slay that right there. God allows them to be imperfect to slay you. So you know they exist. You know greed can be a part of your soul, so you you practice generosity to slay the root of covetousness because you're not just scared about what you have, you're scared about what you have and what it means. But it also means that out of the flow of the gospel, that we have hearts that are captivated with who Jesus is. So we wage warfare against sinfulness by worshiping Jesus, by pursuing him, by loving him, by confessing him, And realizing that when we worship him like this, we battle against everything that's wrong out there and in here. So Lord, help us to be good warriors this week. Out of the overflow of the gospel that we might live in the full understanding of who Jesus is and what he means. God, help us when moments come this week We'd be tempted to protect our position or what people think of us. Give us humble hearts, quick to 
acknowledge our failures, quick to seek forgiveness, quick to be the one who embraces brokenness. And God, guard us from greedy hearts that then hide behind religious language. Lord, help us even now not to keep ourselves too far removed from this text. And as we sing, oh Lord, help us to worship you so we can wage war on the things that are outside of your will for us. We pray this in Jesus' name.